Hey everyone, the It's All Journalism team wanted to remind you that we have an email newsletter where you can get all the latest news about our podcast. Go to our website, itsalljournalism.com, and follow the link to subscribe. Thanks, and enjoy the episode. Black people would be able to see themselves more, and they would be able to feel seen and heard. We would have media that speaks to Black youth, that reflects Black youth instead of speaking over them or speaking around them. The murder of George Floyd in 2020 sparked a national debate about race in America that included media companies examining the diversity of their staff, the opportunities for advancement for employees of color, and how the outlets reported the stories of marginalized people in their communities. I'm Michael O'Connell. Welcome to It's All Journalism. On September 27th, Black in the Newsroom, a 15-minute film produced by Media 2070, received the Best Documentary Award for Short Films at the Detroit Black Film Festival. Today, I'm joined by the film's director, Colette Watson, who's the Vice President of Cultural Strategy for Free Press and co-creator of Media 2070, which we're going to be talking about. We're also joined by Diamond Hardiman of the Free Press. So, Colette and Diamond, welcome to It's All Journalism. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So Colette and Diamond, I usually start these podcasts by uh, trying to find out a little bit about my guests. So let's start with you, Colette. You know, what got you interested in journalism and how'd you end up at uh, Media 2070 and the Free Press? Yeah, well, thank you, Michael. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Journalism has been an interesting journey for me. I initially majored in journalism in undergrad, which I don't know if Diamond knows this, and quickly changed my major because my calculation at the time was I'm not going into war zones. <laughs> but I think when I look back at my young mind, then what that was, was me attempting to try to articulate the fact that I didn't feel like I could envision myself and my values in journalism, the way that it's taught in our country and the way that it's practiced to a large extent. Because the questions and the stories that I wondered about that would be the pinnacle of my practice were not what would be the pinnacle of the journalism practice in the ways we understand it. And, you know, for me, the journey to Free Press and to the Media 2070 project at Free Press went through a lot of advertising agencies. That was my previous career. I was a copywriter and I've always been a creative, mostly through my music as an indie singer songwriter and every now and then dabbling with other types of writing. So I just always wanted to tell stories and use the arts to do that. And then I kind of stumbled into work on immigration rights as a comms employee at Black Alliance for Just Immigration, which at that point I had realized that the advertising industry was not aligned with my values and it decided to make the jump over to the nonprofit sector and started out at Black Alliance for Just Immigration, which was very much like a second college experience for me. And from there came to Free Press where we were able to create the Media 2070 project. Cool. How about you, Diamond? How'd you... Uh end up at the Free Press, and you know, I guess you're involved in Media 2070 as well? Yes, I'm also very happy to be here and grateful to be talking about this, but my journey to Free Press was a little similar but different. I didn't study journalism in undergrad either. I was a political science and African-American studies major, so I was really thinking about systems and history and how they interacted with one another, but a lot of what I did was community organizing, and so I worked in housing, I worked a little bit in bail, and I worked in prisons a lot. 
And community organizers function a lot like journalists in terms of sometimes being the community bulletin board, being information gatherers, sometimes being investigators. And they also were just thinking about things next to and adjacent to media. And so doing a lot of that work, I saw the power of narrative and its ability to create our understanding of problems and our understanding of solutions. So when I was doing bail work, I saw a lot of limits or successes based on the narratives and perceptions that were created in a place. And so I started looking for work back in my hometown in Colorado and Free Press came across my my computer screen because they were starting a News Voices project in Colorado. And when I started talking with the people at Free Press, I was like, they sound like me (laughs) and they sound like the organizers that I work with, but I had never really considered or understood media as something that you could organize around or with. And so that was really intriguing to me as someone that had bounced in housing and bail and prisons, thinking about how media kind of intersected with all of those issues and was something that we were all aware of, but didn't really have the language to talk about. So that's how I ended up with Free Press and doing the work with Media 2070 about understanding media as a system. So tell me a little bit about the mission of Free Press. What is it they're trying to do? How are they using communications? How are they envisioning the future of communications? Well, Free Press was founded about 17, 18 years ago now with a goal of really uplifting a vision of media that would better serve our democracy. And so with that, it's often been phrased as giving people a voice in the decisions that shape our media and our media system. You know, as Diamond just mentioned, many of us do not have an awareness of the ways that media functions as a system, the ways that it's structured through policy and our ability to impact that, to resist and to shift, you know, to to really influence the way that media comes together and the impact that it has on our communities. And so Free Press really has existed as a grassroots organizing group, as well as a policy shop to help deliver, you know, better policy. And all of it is geared towards a, a media that is, we believe, foundational to a more just society. Okay. And the more I read about it last night as I was preparing for this, the the more sort of excited I got about this conversation, because you know, this is an organization that is, I think, addressing a lot of the issues that everybody's sort of talking about, you know, throughout our industry in different ways. You know, how do we engage, you know, different audiences? How can we change our focus? How can we create a diverse newsroom? How can we aptly reward people who work for us? And, you know, how do we support democracy when there are so many different forces, corporations, large corporations owning local media outlets, et cetera, that are kind of undermining a lot of that. And so it's nice to see somebody who appears to be forward thinking and trying to, I guess, develop a plan, or at least advocate toward a more just media system. Tell me about Media 2070, you know, well, first of all, what does the 2070 relate to? Well, 2070 is 50 years from the founding of the project, which we were founded in 2020. And at that time, we realized that there was a 50 year cycle happening. If you go back to the Chicago race riots, 
of about 1919 and 1920. You know, after that violence took place, a commission was convened to analyze why it happened. And that's, you know, around the time of the Red Summer across the country that was happening. But that Chicago Race Relations Commission found that media had played a great role in fomenting the violence and needed to be addressed. Then you fast forward to, you know, 1969, 1970, when the Kerner Report is commissioned after, you know, so much unrest across the country from, you know, Detroit to L.A. and beyond. And the Kerner Commission found that media and narrative were playing a major role in the ways that Black folks in this country, particularly in urban centers, felt unheard. A lot of people like to quote Martin Luther King saying the riot is the language of the unheard unheard, unseen, all of this we think is just a part of how the media system had functioned to try to erase Black folks and the fullness of our truths in our lives. And so about 50 years later, we have this uprising in 2020, global uprising for Black lives following the murder of George Floyd. And to us, we feel like we want to get off that 50-year Ferris wheel, Michael. We want to interrupt that cycle and begin to envision a world that would exist 50 years from now in 2017 where the media system has been transformed and reimagined, where power and resources have been redistributed in a process of reparations that results in Black people having the resources and power and control to really tenderly steward our own stories from ideation through production and distribution. So that's what we envision for the year 2070. We're not waiting until 2070. We're doing the work now, planting the seeds for that to be the reality. That's your deadline of your 50-year project, I guess. <laughs> yes. <laughs> 27. Anyway. We only got 30 years left. It's really fascinating. I, you know, there's a 100-page essay that's almost, I guess, a manifesto or a, I don't know what you would call it, a schedule, a, a plan that begins in the history of the way Black people were, you know, represented in media, but also, you know, the shortcomings of media were sort of delivered upon uh, Black people historically. What went into sort of the writing of that essay, but also the establishment of this, I guess, manifesto? If that's not words you want to use, if you don't, then that's fine. You know what? It's funny because how we describe it is, it is an expansive presentation of examples of media harm. And we're really, really intentional when we use that word harm, because most folks understand that where there is harm, there must be repair. And so how it came about for us was, you know, in 2020, there were a lot of conversations happening at Free Press about the future of the media system. At that point, you know, again, we're in the wake of the murder of George Floyd. We're understanding there to be people who are, who are looking for solidarity and accountability in the world and particularly in the media industry. Some people like to use the word reckoning. We don't really, but these very brave journalists and media makers were sort of rising up within their organizations to talk about what, you know, what harms were taking place. And you had community members that were receiving apologies from media organizations for stories like the Tulsa massacre that were not covered or or that maybe local media organizations even contributed to the violence that happened. People were taking a fresh look at the Wilmington massacre and how the publisher there, you know, a Wilmington News Observer, you know, was part of basically bringing about the only coup that's ever happened on U.S. soil, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, through history. So in that environment of people really taking a critical look at media, 
we understood that that systemic oppression absolutely, you know, for us, we understand that the fulcrum of that is anti-Blackness. And so we knew that we needed to have an accounting of how the media system has harmed Black folks from the earliest colonial newspapers until now. And I think what brought us to that point, too, was one of our colleagues and co-creators, Alicia Bell, had been working, doing just really groundbreaking work along with Diamond and others on our team to work with newsrooms on ways that they could transform their coverage in partnership with local community members. And we had made so much progress in one particular city only for that paper to then be bought out and kind of sucked up by, I don't know if it was a hedge fund, but you know, that thing is, that is very common these days. And for most of the people who on that staff had committed to, you know, changing the way coverage happens and were really building these wonderful relationships with community members, for all of those folks to end up, you know, bought out or fired or what have you. And we understood that we can all commit to all kinds of changes, but if there is not a different economic model, if there's not a different sustainable ecosystem for news and information, one that is grounded in our understanding of the ways that harm has taken place, and one that is structured differently in the process of a federal reparations framework, then all of that work will not be able to take root. So, you know, understanding the need for different economic models, even as we pursue different practices, all of that factored in. And then, of course, just our analysis of as a project that's grounded in Black queer feminism that we always center those on the margins. All of that fed into the energy of us writing this essay and, and conducting this research, largely led by our colleague, Joseph Torres, who's also the author of News for All the People, the epic story of race in the American media, who's just a, a fantastic historian and, and contributed a lot to this essay. So, Diamond, tell me about your involvement in 2070. What, what were you working on? Yeah, so I joined the 2070 project right after its release in 2020, when a lot of these things were happening. And like Colette said, I was doing similar work to what Alicia Bell was doing, but I was doing it in Colorado. And so in Colorado, we were having conversations with Black communities about the coverage that was happening on the protests and what kind of language was being used to describe the people involved in the uprisings and using that as a way to gauge the relationship between Black folks and media. And so through Colorado, we started thinking more about that relationship and the history that goes into why it is such a ruptured connection between media and journalism and Black communities. And so a lot of that also feeds into the, the, the Media 2070 work, thinking about how history has played a role in getting us this far and how those practices filter into what kind of stories are told and what kind of impacts it has in community. So I spent a lot of time working with people on the ground, materializing those impacts, asking how it impacted different parts of their lives, and then really doing the work to dream, what could it look like if we change these systems and what would be possible if we were able to start building bridges of repair for our information ecosystems. You know, one of the things about doing a, a podcast on journalism, on digital journalism, for 10 years every week, you, you hear a lot of different people's talk and you sort of see the evolution of, of the discussion. You know, I'm also a working journalist. I was you know, covering, you know, riots in, in and around Washington, D.C. And on the podcast, talking to people about this sort of change that everybody in the different newsrooms felt that they needed to, we need to 
think about how we're reporting these events in a historical context. We need to figure out, you know, how we can represent these communities that we're not talking to. You know, and part of it was looking at the makeup of their staff and, you know, hiring people. But now, you know, we're two years down the down the road and, and I start hearing things about people who uh, who were hired to fill a, a particular need, who feel unfulfilled or unsupported. I think certainly the documentary that Colette directed, Black in the Newsroom, sort of addresses that issue. Tell me a little bit about that, Colette. How did that documentary come about? So the subject of the documentary is a very talented journalist named Elizabeth Montgomery, who had come here to Phoenix, Arizona, where I'm based, and become arts and culture reporter for the Arizona Republic, which is the largest newspaper in the state of Arizona. Phoenix, Arizona is the fifth largest city in the nation. And she really was a breath of fresh air in the ways that she was covering Black community. And then I began to see her posting about the hardships she was facing, posting online, that is, about the hardships she was facing at Arizona Republic. Now, mind you, I've been introduced to Elizabeth by our colleague, Alicia Bell, who knew her from the amazing journalism she was doing in North Carolina. She has a track record of just doing really incredible work. And so I was really um, dismayed, you know, to see that she was having hardships, but something caught my eye. She was being really transparent about how much she was getting paid, about the difficult conversations she was being pulled in, the ways that her work was kind of being demeaned and undermined. And she was just telling it like it is, you know, as people say. And so often when we're talking about issues of bias and racism and discrimination and particularly pay equity, there's so much that's hush hush. So I was really struck by how transparent she was and, you know, talked to the media 2070 team and we felt really passionately that we could help to amplify her testimony using the art of film. Because we all know an Elizabeth, we all know many, many journalists who are underpaid, overworked, who are experiencing racial or gender or other types of discrimination. And we knew that if we uplifted this story, we would help people to have a name and a face to put to this to either identify with or to understand what really goes on in media. And then with Elizabeth's story, we also talk about connecting the dots of the media system to understand why it's so hard to tell Black stories, not just because of the ways that journalists are treated, but because who's in control, who has that narrative control in our media system. So we, yeah, we were able to, to shoot the documentary and we're now screening it at festivals and universities and other places. It all starts with the bravery of Elizabeth Montgomery. Yeah, it's pretty powerful. And it does touch on a number of problems that we have in media that affect all types of things, but certainly affect people of color, marginalized, you know, people, you know, someone's hired to, you know, quote, unquote, solve a problem. And they're solving the problem the way that they should or they they would. And not getting that support is really kind of frustrating. And part of it is just the economics of journalism, and the way, you know, things have been set up you know, over the last, you know, 50 years about, you know, the news industry. That's totally right. And for us, the entry point to understand the holistic 
problem with our media system? You know, why are why is local news less and less available in so many communities? Why is it not diverse? Why does it not reflect the diversity of our population? Why are we seeing such a proliferation of disinformation, particularly with regard to our election cycles, but in general with regard to our pandemic and other things that are happening, you know, that makes us less safe and makes our communities harder to live in. All of this is connected and we understand that at the center of it is the ways that anti-Blackness has been really good for business, for media for a long time. And, and we have one way we talk about it is, I keep quoting Martin Luther King today, but there's a quote from him that where he said to Harry Belafonte, I fear I've integrated my people into a burning house. So we understand that hiring, diversity and inclusion, those are important. We're not saying that diversity and inclusion isn't important, but what does it mean when, to your point you were just making, Michael, when someone is you know, hired to fill a need or what have you, but they're brought into a toxic environment where we basically are losing Black journalists at the mid-career point. And that's been you know, proven by the research of Carla Murphy. And when we lose Black folks at that mid-career point you know, in journalism, then we lose the possibility of their leadership and their editorial control. So we end up just continuing the status quo. Right. That's a, a root of a lot of problems in the newsroom working toward that solution. And it's frustrating, you know, as you said, if there's if the the economic system is set up so that you have organizations like yours that are trying to take positive steps and people, you know, moving the conversation forward. But at the same time, there's a, you know, economic system that's not necessarily rewarding those people for moving forward. You mentioned reparations and it's media, is it media reparations. You know, people hear that word reparations and, you know, they think one thing. What does this what does this mean in this context? Diamond, uh, did you want to feel that? Yeah. Media reparations is the goal for us is for black people to be able to control their stories from ideation to distribution. So what does it look like to be able to be in the process of creating stories and sources and thinking about the creation of it and writing and storytelling and filmmaking all the way to how does it get brought out to community in a way that's accessible for them to understand. And so that's what it kind of looks like in process. But allies of ours created a four-part circle that kind of talks about the process of reparations where we're thinking about reckoning, accountability, acknowledgement, and redress. So when we're thinking about reckoning, we're talking about what happened in 2020, where folks are naming what's going on in their newsrooms, and then how are folks taking uh, responsibility for their role in this harm? How are newsrooms speaking out and understanding the role that they play in the larger system? And how are they making moves towards being accountable for that harm? And how are we also putting in place systems and processes to keep that harm from happening again? So that's kind of what the process of reparations looks like for us. But for media, it's very specific to media and how it touches different parts of community and media as an institution and, and system. And I've talked to lots of different people who who support this type of thinking that want to change the the direction of their newsroom. What you know, short of <laughs> short of like giving a list of things that need to be done, you know, what type of steps can people take to sort of turn their newsroom around and sort of maybe adopt some of these principles? I can go ahead and start and I'd like to um, kick it to Colette as well, but there's many places to start because even though we're talking about those four different steps, it's a circle that feeds into one another. So we can start at any place and think about how we're continuing to build 
a journey of healing, a journey of repair. We talk about reparations a lot, not as a one-time event or as a destination, but as a process and a way of thinking that changes how we interact with one another fundamentally so that we have different outcomes and different interactions with one another. So for newsrooms, it could look like beginning to do the research, beginning to do the investigating about their role in history and what their headlines have said historically and the ways that they have treated Black journalists within their own newsrooms, thinking about their own relationships to communities. It could look like beginning to invest resources in Black journalists, in Black youth, so that we can begin to address the problem of who gets to tell the story and what kind of connections to community that we have. It could look like rethinking what we even consider storytelling to be more fitting to the communities that are that we're they're supposed to be serving because we're we're just writing in written word in sometimes and so thinking about communities that better understand things through audio or video or different kinds of exploring journalism so it's a little that's a little bit those are a few steps that folks could take but I definitely like to hear what Colette thinks too I mean, absolutely. Those are the steps. You know, I think the only thing I would add is that as they go through that cycle that Diamond is describing so eloquently, that there has to be an understanding of the importance of care. And Media 2070 actually issued a pledge last year calling on newsroom and other media organizations to pledge to care for Black journalists and communities. And we understand that when the history of the media system is one that has been centered on harm and the exploitation of Black labor and Black stories, that the way to counteract that, the way to directly address and redress that is to take on a posture of caring. So what does that look like? Well, we're co-creating that now first, let me say, in community with many others. But some of the things we've identified is that, you know, there has to be equitable compensation. There has to be Black folks getting the care, the, the mental health and wellness support that they need as they're reporting on these harrowing stories for these newsrooms. People have to be su supported within their newsrooms by leadership and Black communities by extension, you know, the ways that many newsrooms perpetuate police narratives or partner with, you know, um, other systems that are part of the systemic oppression of our folks. Newsrooms have to be more critical about their involvement in that process and divest from compounding the oppression that Black communities are experiencing in communities on a number of issues, not just policing, but whether that's housing, climate, or others. So all of that is a part of what we call care. And we're actually going to be rolling out a cohort next year where, you know, as we come out of the off the Black in the Newsroom film tour and a lot of people are asking us, how can we be better going forward with a pilot group of newsrooms or media organizations who will really take on that journey to understand what care means as part of a process of reparations. I find all this so fascinating and hopeful in a way, because, you know, sometimes you run out of hope in these conversations. It's like, I guess for me, part of the, part of the thing I think about is, you know, talking to people who view the problem of black journalists in the newsroom of getting and of covering particular communities as sort of a commodity or an item or a check on a box. And they're not really thinking about the the actual integration to the point where you're actually changing your identity of who you are and what you're, you know, sending out in the community as a news organization. 
And I think there are a lot of journalists who were thinking about that in 2020. And I don't know if, if the same number are still thinking about that with that intensity. I wish they would because <laughs> it's just within our power to make these positive changes. You know, you get into journalism for a lot of different reasons, but I think one of the underlying ones is you want to make a better world. Although there are people who get into it apparently to deceive other people, but I think most good journalists want to make a difference. And this certainly is a, you know, it's an area where there's a reckoning for a newsroom. And I, I know you said you would want to use that word, but that's kind of the way it is. I wanted to ask you a question from your essay, you know, what would it look like if we had a media system where black people were able to create and control the distribution of their own stories and narratives? Okay, well, I'll jump in. I mean, what would it look like if we had a media system, you said, where Black people were able to create and control? Well, first of all, <laughs> there would be such an abundance of Black stories. I think for Black folks and for other marginalized communities, there's such a narrow telling of who we are, whether it be in journalism, entertainment, book publishing, the tech sector, you know, algorithms, and all the ways that the messages are sort of piped in day to day to help us shape a certain perception of the world around us. So much storytelling around Black folks is centered on crime, sort of perpetuating a myth of Black inferiority and criminality. There's no Black folks from other countries or other places on the earth. There's no Black queer folks or trans folks <laughs> in this very sort of narrow telling that exists now. But we know that that's not true. We know that Black people exist in every, every group. There are Black disabled folks, Black queer and trans folks, Black immigrants, Black scholars, Black people just sitting on the stoop day to day, talking to each other, connecting Black artists, that our humanity is so broad that we are deserving of, you know, investment in our communities. Inherently, we, our humanity is just readily understandable to us, you know, and, and we know that our futures, that we are in the future. We are worthy of being present in the fantasy future. We can be a mermaid. We can be so many things. Uh, um, well, we <laughs> who knew this would be a controversy? Who knew? Who well, knew? I guess I guess if you're paying attention, it's like of course there's a controversy about a black mer mermaid. Of course there is because yeah. you know people are racist, stupid people. Well, and when storytelling is so narrow and white centered, what it does, it is has, it has socialized folks to believe that then the future must be white. The fantasy realm must be white. Everything must be white. And that really is something that not only harms black folks, but harms all of us, even the people who hold those attitudes. It, it really undermines our, our ability to encompass the full breadth of our humanity. So if we had a media system where black folk could control our own stories, I mean, can you imagine just the breadth of, of Blackness that we would see in just so much beyond these very narrow kind of violent stereotypes? There would be just so much softness, I think, Michael, so much more understanding of Black sensitivity, of the inner dialogue that Black folks have, of the dreams we hold, what makes us feel actually safe beyond the very kind of narrow thing we call public safety. When does a Black person feel safe? You know, uh, things like that, I just think would there would be just so much more, so many more portrayals and so much more stories to choose from in the media landscape. That's what I think, Diamond. I don't know what, what you think. Yeah, I'm loving that vision. 
I really agree with that and want to center in on the humanness. I think if we had a, a media system where we would be able to create and control the distribution of our stories, Black people would be able to see themselves more and they would be able to feel seen and heard. We would have media that speaks to Black youth, that reflects Black youth instead of speaking over them or speaking around them. It would speak to Black queer folks. It would speak to differently abled folks. It would just open the doors of, of what's possible and what kind of conversations that we could have. And I think that it would also be very creative just because of the ways that Black folks historically have had to tell information and tell stories without the resources, without the investment. And so we've had to get things done differently and have still managed to do that. So I think that it would open up such a world of creativity and such different ways to process and understand information and stories. And I think it would look a lot like things that we've seen before. It would look like some of the trailblazing journalists and journalism orgs that we've seen do incredible investigative work, incredible work to hold power accountable. But it would also, like Colette said, look like something that we also have never seen just because we're able to open the gates to folks. And as you were talking about hopefulness, I think it looks like some of the things that we already have today, but just in more abundance and with more life and resources fed into them. Because I can think about how far we've come even in a decade when we're talking about TV and representation or music and the representation in that. So it looks something like what we have, but just more attention and life given to it. I'm guessing I'm older than both. I'm probably older than the two of you combined. But, you know, in my lifetime, I, I saw the arc of the change of the gay experience in America, the possibility and the reality of, of gay marriage. In my lifetime, I remember times when that was just something that was not talked about, that people did not think about, people couldn't imagine, but people changed and things change. And because people made the effort, because it was the right thing to do, to advocate for that change. And so I'm hopeful, you know, I said I wasn't hopeful, but I am hopeful that, you know, good people working towards a positive future can make a difference. When you say that, it makes me think about Marsha P. Johnson, who was, you know, this amazing transgender Black woman activist who was a part of the Stonewall Uprising, of course, that basically gave birth to the modern gay liberation movement. And then we get, you know, gay marriage and other gains over the years, but it's particularly in these times. What would it be like if Marsha P. Johnson, instead of the realities she faced where, you know, she was just deeply harmed, you know, beaten by the police many times, you know, in this particular uprising at Stonewall, thrown into jail repeatedly, and ultimately her life ended, and we're still not even sure exactly how her life ended, but at such a young age, which is the reality for so many Black trans women, I think the average life expectancy is like 33 years, somewhere in the, in the mid-30s, which is just devastating compared to the overall life expectancy being about 74 years in this country. So when you ask us, what would it look like if we had this media system where Black folks could create and control our own stories? To me, ultimately, it would look like people like Marsha P. Johnson 
being so resourced, having so much abundance and softness and care and support in their lives. Where would we be now if Marsha P. Johnson, instead of being thrown into jail, you know, had instead been resourced and been able to shape, help shape policy and narrative? How much farther along would we be now, not just gay people having the right to be married, but goodness gracious, would we have all of this regressive, you know, legislation and narrative that we have now, bathroom bills and things of that sort, or would we as, as a society be further along in our ability to care for each other they're not full humanity. You know, th this is what we're robbed of when we allow our media system in particular, but all of our systems to continue to, to extract from and exploit and ultimately prematurely in the lives of Black folks. We all lose out on the future that is possible. But in particular, of course, for us, it's a matter of stopping the harm of Black folks and understanding how we can collectively dream a future where, you know, Mar the Marsha P. Johnsons of the world and so many others are fully resourced and it's not so hard to do the work that Diamond described. Because we have a lot of people doing the, the type of journalism that, that's needed and the type of information and news that's needed, but where they can do it and also have a, a, a roof over their heads and a reliable source of three meals every day. Hell, maybe a steak, Michael, every now and again, <laughs> you know, take a trip, a vacation, take a rest and not have their lives, you know, just be in their labor, be so exploited in the name of creating journalism and, and media. For sure. And I'd want to give the impression that the archives that described it had ended and everything was all perfect and everything had been solved. There are many things that certainly what's going on with, as you said, the regressive legislation that's coming out and the things you hear people say at, you know, school board meetings that just amaze you. But this is where we are in 2022. Hopefully we'll, we will be in a better place in 2070. I'm um, talking to Colette Watson and Diamond Hardiman. And I encourage everybody to, you know, I'm going to include a link to uh, Media 2070's essay. It's it's really powerful. It makes you think and it puts so much of this into historical context. Thank you both for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having us. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having us. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. Speaking of subscribing, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us grow our podcast, like and share our episodes on social media. Look for us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Capre wrote our theme music. Emilio Brust helped with our booking. Steph Thomas is our social media manager. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>